so good to be with you all uh, this Sunday. Such a privilege to spend this time worshiping with you and, and singing. And Max, thank you for your prayer. And uh, I'm going to pray for us one more time as we dive into this passage. Lord, we are so, so grateful uh, for this time together and uh, that we can gather uh, with, with joy, uh, that we can gather uh, knowing that you care for us and love us, and so much evidence of that um, being here uh, together in this building, especially after the last few years, is, is an evidence we don't take for granted. Um, also, the fact that you give us your word, and uh, so thankful that you speak, and uh, that in your word we see truth, and we see goodness, and we see beauty, and we pray that you would give us eyes today uh, to see all these things, and that you would work uh, in all of us uh, as we spend this time together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you a Tamerlane in your attic? Was a question posed in 1925 in an article in the very popular at the time magazine, the Saturday Evening Post. The author of the article was not just an author, he was also a rare book collector. And by Tamerlane, he meant the first book of poetry that the famous author Edgar Allan Poe ever wrote. The book was called Tamerlane and Other Poems, and it was published in 1827 by Poe himself before he became famous. And he published a very small number of books, and an even smaller number were purchased. Of course, eventually Edgar Allan Poe became uh, quite famous, and he would sometimes mention this earlier book that he published, but people would hear him, and they weren't even sure that the book existed because no one had a copy. Well, eventually, over time, a couple of copies were found, and by the time this article appeared in the Saturday Evening Post, a total of four copies in the entire world had been discovered. And then this article in the Saturday Evening Post, people actually did look in their attic, and it produced a few more finds, and by 1940 or so, there were about 11 copies, and at that point, everyone figured that that was it. But then one day in 1988, there was a fisherman from Massachusetts at an antique store, and for some reason, he was looking at a bunch of old farm literature, literally old fertilizer catalogs, when out of nowhere, he noticed that word, Tamerlane, and he remembered that, that there was something special about that name. And so he bought the book for $15, and he took the book to an auction house, and within months, it was sold for about $200,000. I read about uh, this in the book, Rare Books Uncovered by Rebecca Barry. And in the book, she tells a lot of stories, just like this one, of people that were able to see these rare and precious books for what they were. They saw and noticed the beauty and the value that so many others missed. You think about it, so many other people saw these rare books and had no impact on them. They actually held a $200,000 book in their hand and they put it back. Then maybe they bought something else, maybe an old fertilizer catalog, and they went on to the next thing in their day. But for those who saw these books for what they were, it was life-changing. We're continuing today with our series in the Gospel of John, and if you've been paying attention, you have noticed that the pace of the Gospel of John has really slowed down, really for, for several chapters now. We've been in the last few days of Jesus' life, and we've slowed down as, as well to take this time to really spend time dwelling on the last hours of Jesus' life and death on the cross. And now we've reached a point in John where we've, we've crossed the point where we have seen Jesus' death over the last couple of weeks, and now we're beginning the journey to his resurrection, just as Easter approaches for us. 
But before we get to the resurrection of Jesus, we see what happens in between the time that Jesus dies and the time when he is raised. So today's passage, while it's a brief one, is also really full of some very important biblical themes. And there are different ways, I think, to approach this passage. But I think one helpful way is to think about the effect that the death of Jesus has on the other people that we see in the passage. Because we're going to see for, for some, it has a very minimal effect, if any, and for others, it changes everything. And we'll think about what, why that is and how seeing the cross works itself out, not just in the lives of the people we see in John 19, but in our world and in our lives today. So we'll look at this passage in two parts. We'll look at verses 31 to 34, and that will help us to see the cross of Christ through one set of eyes. And then in verses 35 to 37, we'll be helped to see the cross of Jesus Christ through another set of eyes. So let's start with verses 31 to 34. I'll read that section again. It says, Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. So John sets the stage by telling us that all these things were happening on the day of preparation. And it can be a little confusing. What, what exactly are they preparing for? <clears throat> are they still preparing for the Passover? No, they're actually preparing for the weekly Sabbath. And this Sabbath actually stood out because it was the Sabbath that came during the Passover. And not only that, it was the Sabbath when there was a special offering that happened to fall at this time. So it was really kind of a culmination, a, a big day of religious festivities, and it was a day that was specially set aside. So the Jewish leaders are preparing for the Sabbath, and part of preparing for the Sabbath for them was taking care of things that are not allowed to happen on the Sabbath. And one of the things that could not happen on the Sabbath, Sabbath was that these bodies would continue to hang on the cross overnight. This was taught in, in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 21, that if someone is put to death and you hang him on a tree, he should be buried the same day. It says, for a hangman is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And so these Jewish leaders have a problem because they think these bodies are going to defile the land. But at the same time, the Jewish leaders weren't in charge of the execution of Jesus. Remember, everything that they did, they ran through the Romans. And so they make a request to the, to the Roman official, Pilate, who we've heard from before, that the legs of these men be broken. Now, some of you are probably familiar with why the legs will be broken. And you know that it really speaks to, to the brutality of this form of execution. Because dying from crucifixion was typically not a quick death. People could survive for days, and the way that they would survive would be to pull their body up using their legs so that they could continue to breathe and continue to try to survive. But if someone's legs are broken, they will no longer be able to do this, and, and the death will come more quickly. And so the pragmatic Jewish leaders are thinking, Let, let's speed this up, interestingly, not out of mercy for those who are suffering, but so that they could scrupulously follow the details of God's law. And ultimately, so that their Sabbath festivities would be unhindered. And ultimately, it would seem, especially in keeping in character with what we know of them, so 
that they could feel okay about themselves the next day when that Sabbath came. You know, I read uh, a variety of commentaries when I was studying uh, this passage. I really loved how one person started his comments on this section. He said, we return to the Jewish leaders. Peace of mind still eludes them. And once again, it is their religious scruples which are the problem. It seems so ironic that Jesus announces it is finished. And yet the very next thing we see happen in this passage is that the Jewish leaders seem completely unaffected by this pronouncement. And what do they do? They continue to go about their usual business and they continue to go about the things that they thought made them good. The things that they thought made them okay. Now yes, we should be clear, they were following a law that God gave them and that, and that can seem like a good thing and in some ways is a good thing. But the Jewish leaders, as we have seen again and again in the Gospels and in the Gospel of John, they were following these laws to pridefully prove their own goodness and their own rightness, which was never, ever the point of the law that God gave them. And we know that they are following the law wrongly because if they had understood God's law correctly, it would have led them to love God and love their neighbor. And if they had understood God's word correctly, they would have understood who Jesus was instead of having him killed. And in a way, when we see all this, I think it just makes us feel sad for them. The Jewish leaders were so focused on their own righteousness, it must have been impossible for them to ever rest. And it sure seems that way. We see over and over in the Gospels that even on the Sabbath day, the day that God set aside for them to rest, they could never get past the value of their own performance. The impression you get about these leaders in the Gospels is that they often lived at this kind of frantic mental pace, trying to make sure that not only were they performing externally in exactly the right way, but also that everyone else was performing in exactly the right way. You know, having said all this, part of the challenge, I think, in reading the Bible still today is that there are so many practices that, that feel so foreign to us, especially if you're not used to reading the Bible, it can be challenging, I think, to step back 2,000 years into a world of, of Roman domination, laws from the book of Deuteronomy, Sabbath practices that just feel ancient and arcane, perhaps distant, perhaps they even feel irrelevant. But even though many things have changed in 2,000 years, I think we see the human heart is pretty similar to what it was then, because what was it that those Jewish leaders were after? They were after, as that commentator said, peace of mind. They wanted to know, they wanted to feel that that they were okay. And the way that they got there was by doing a bunch of things that made them feel like they were enough. I read a book last year called Seculosity by David Zoll, and Zoll points out in this book that this attitude is really deep in the heart of all of us, and that while religion, in the strict sense of the word, might be in decline in some places, In some ways, people have never been more religious. And Zal goes on to talk about all the areas of our lives where all of us, I think, can be tempted to place our religious devotion. Romance, parenting, technology, work, leisure, sports, food, politics. These are the areas where we can be tempted to ascribe religious devotion. And when we do that, and when those things rise to that level of importance, then what happens is we have to feel like we are good enough and right enough in each of those areas. In fact, Zal says that our religion is what we lean into to tell us we're okay, that our lives matter. Our religion is that which we rely on, not just for meaning or hope, 
but enoughness. And just as the Jewish leaders needed to do their works in public so that everyone would, would recognize them, so too are we tempted, I think, to display our righteousness and enoughness before others. Sometimes, you know, with signs on our lawn, sometimes with our clothing or how we eat, and very often, right, today's day, today's day and age on social media. And I think if you're on social media, one of the reasons it can prove to be so exhausting and make us so sad is because it is a place to prove all the time that we're good enough and that we're on the right side of every single issue. As David Zoll put it in his book, a culture dominated by outward demonstrations of piety will become an increasingly merciless place, full not only of self-justification, but self-consciousness and fear. It will be a place that crucifies rather than forgives. And I think that paragraph could describe 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem and can certainly describe even our own hearts today. See, when we live in this way, it can feel good for a little bit, but eventually we're led into that sort of franticness and self-righteousness that is not all that different from what we see from the Jewish leaders. And it's exhausting. Because instead of receiving the love and the favor and the care of God and sharing it with our neighbors, we can end up in this exhausting competition with our neighbors to see who's actually the most righteous, the most good, the most enough. You know, I think it's significant that this section is the last thing we hear from the Jewish leaders in the Gospel of John. Their final act here is to make sure that the dead bodies of those crucified, including an innocent man that they framed, were taken off the cross. Why? Ultimately, so that they could feel good about themselves the next day when they gathered for the Sabbath. But there's another point to this section of the passage. As one person put it, actually the main point of this part of the passage is simply to show that Jesus really is dead. See, look at how John describes what unfolds after the Jewish leaders make their request for the legs of those hanging on the cross to be broken. You'll notice he is very methodical in how he describes what took place. The soldiers come to the first man and they break his legs. They come to the other man, they break his legs as well. But as they come upon Jesus, they note that he was already dead. And John is very careful to tell us that Jesus' legs, in fact, were not broken, which we'll come back to you later in the passage. And John is also careful to tell us what happened to the dead body of Jesus, that a soldier pierced his side with a spear and that blood and water flowed from him. Why did the soldier pierce him? We actually don't know for sure. It could have been to make sure that Jesus was really dead. Maybe he was just being violent. We, we really are not positive. But John is specific to record all of this, and he specifically notes the blood and the water. Now, why, why did that happen? Why did the blood and water come out in this way? Again, we're not 100% sure, but medical experts will tell you that the blood and water flowing in this way actually makes a lot of sense given how Jesus died. And the point of this section is that John is writing very specifically to demonstrate that Jesus really did die as a human being. And whether or not John was specifically writing to address this fact, one of the big controversies in the early church was whether or not Jesus Christ actually was a human being. And it's really, really important that he is. The Bible affirms for us that Jesus is one person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. Jesus is really God, truly God, 
And Jesus is really and truly human. It's not 60% God, 40% human. It doesn't go up and down depending on the day. He is fully man and fully God. As I recently heard one person point out, if there's an accent today to the Christian defense of the faith, something we sometimes call apologetics, it often focuses on the fact that Jesus is really God. And obviously that's important. We should defend that that truth. His humanity at times is, is usually kind of assumed. But in the early church, it's really interesting, that wasn't really the case. People often assumed, yeah, Jesus is divine, but they couldn't get their minds around the idea that he was human. In the minds of many, the, the divine and the human shouldn't and, and couldn't come into contact with one another. A couple of years ago, the New York Times published an article about sewer cleaners in the nation of Pakistan. The work is very dangerous and is obviously extremely dirty. And it is expected in Pakistan that this job will be primarily done by Christians. Why? Because Christians in Pakistan are generally assigned to a much lower social class. In fact, a few years ago, when some new cleaning jobs opened, the government advertised the jobs and went so far to say that only Christians need apply. The idea is that that the work is dirty and the work is unclean and that it's beneath the other people in Pakistan. The upper class people, that they shouldn't be involved in something so unclean. It can be hard for us to fathom, but a long time ago, around the time when Jesus walked the earth, people felt the same way about the entirety of creation. That it was polluted and and unclean. And therefore, someone who is truly divine could could never really be in the created world and and could certainly never take on human flesh because it, it would pollute them. The idea is that creation is bad and beneath someone who is God. And therefore, in that line of thinking, Jesus could not possibly be fully human if he is divine. And so people came up with with other explanations for who Jesus is, that that maybe he only appeared to come, that maybe he was like a ghost or, or a phantom, and that would explain why people saw him, but no, he really couldn't be a human. But it's very clear from this passage and many, many others that Jesus is indeed fully human. And this is important in many ways. That's why we confessed this truth earlier. We said it's important that Jesus is human because in human nature, he might, on our behalf, perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin. And also that he might sympathize with our weaknesses. And when we see that Jesus is fully human, we also see that God affirms the goodness of his creation by sending his son in the flesh into it. And that does a couple things. It helps us to understand both the glory of God's creation and also helps us to acknowledge the sin and the sadness that has overtaken God's creation. Both are true, and Jesus experienced both. He experienced so many good things in this world. Friendship, good food, the love of a mother and father, many other things. But he also experienced deep disappointment, physical illness, loneliness, and yes, as we've seen, even death. He truly does sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And that is so important because it means that as a Christian, you do not have a God who stands off at a distance while you suffer. He sympathizes with you. He is with you. And if we lose the humanity of Christ, we lose this precious truth. And that is one reason that this close eyewitness account of John's is just so precious and so important 
to all of us who are Christians. And we see that idea developed in our last few verses, in verses 35 to 37. John says, He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. We see here that John doesn't just state what has happened. He also states emphatically and kind of repeatedly that this is definitely an eyewitness account. This is definitely what happened. There's actually some controversy over over who John is actually referring to here when he says, he who saw it has borne witness. Is he referring to himself? Is he referring to some other eyewitness? I tend to think John is referring to himself, speaking about himself in the third person, talking about things he saw with his own eyes. But no matter what, John is saying that the details that he has shared are eyewitness testimony. These things really happen, and it's really important, reader, that you understand. So yes, these things really happened, and and there is a reason that this is so important. John has said these things for a reason, and he tells us what the reason is. He writes not just to justify himself, not just to prove others wrong. The reason he says these things is because of his desire for others to know what he knows and to see what he's had the privilege of seeing. Remember, John is writing these things as an older man, and he's seen a lot. He's seen people reject Jesus. He's seen people hear about Jesus and be unaffected and go their own way. He's seen the frantic Jewish leaders still trying to prove their own righteousness. But by God's grace, he has seen the cross in a way that others have not. He has seen the cross, yes, as a historical fact, but as so much more. And he goes to the Old Testament to show what it all means. First, he goes back to that seemingly obscure detail that Jesus' legs weren't broken. Yes, it is a historical detail, but it's much more than that. John likely had in mind a couple passages, perhaps Exodus 12, 46, in which God is telling the nation of Israel how to celebrate the Passover meal. And the Passover meal commemorated the night that the nation of Israel was delivered from slavery in Egypt. And part of this festival was for the Jewish people to kill a lamb to remember this deliverance. And God says to them about this meal, he says, it must be eaten inside the house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. And John also likely had in mind Psalm 34, 20. In Psalm 34, David is talking about how God cares for the righteous. And the Psalm says he protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. So John is saying, by referencing these passages, that Jesus is the true Passover lamb who gives his life to set his people free from the slavery and misery of sin and the slavery and misery of the frantic and empty self-righteousness that the Jewish leaders were pursuing. And John is also saying that Jesus is the true righteous man and that even in his death, his body was protected and preserved by God because God protects and cares for his people. See, even in these quick references, John shows the goodness of Jesus and the goodness of being known and loved by Jesus. See, when we turn to him, we can know that he will ultimately deliver us from our sin, deliver us from our suffering, and that he will ultimately protect and care for us. And John knows this, and he desires for people to know Jesus because he knows how good Jesus is. He is telling the truth, he says, so that you also 
may believe. And there's another reference to the Old Testament as well. They will look on him whom they have pierced. And this reference takes us to a different place in the Bible, the book of Zechariah. And this section, actually, of the book of Zechariah refers to the defeat and the destruction of all of the enemies of the people of God. And then not only that, but right after that, also the cleansing of the people of God. God's enemies conquered, God's people made new. In this section of John, where where the Jewish leaders are so concerned for their own cleanliness, their own purity, John referencing this passage reminds us that the very death of Jesus is what brings about the victory and the goodness and the new life that we try to get to, that we still try to achieve in so many other ways. In a nutshell, John is saying that the death of Jesus is absolutely a historical fact and that it is not just a historical fact, but an event with far-reaching implications. Christian author N.T. Wright, he says that the death of Jesus of Nazareth as the king of the Jews, the bearer of Israel's destiny, the fulfillment of God's promises to his people of old, is either the most stupid, senseless waste and misunderstanding the world has ever seen, or it is the fulcrum around which world history turns. As Christians, we believe it's the latter. And one reason we believe this is true is because of how the death of Jesus fulfilled Scripture that was written so long before he was born, as John demonstrates in this passage. You know, when we see Scripture fulfilled, it's important on a couple of fronts. The first reason, as we've already seen, is that fulfilled Scripture helps us to see that Jesus really is who he says that he is. That's a big part, again, of why John has given so many close details that show he is an eyewitness And then emphatically states that this is an eyewitness account. These things really happen. The exact things that happen, down to the details, are very important. Jesus really did come to this earth. He really did take on human flesh. He really did die in our place for us. But there's another reason that it's important that this account fulfills Scripture. And that is because fulfilled Scripture speaks to the character of our God. We see that he is not just a promise-making God. He is a promise-keeping God. He keeps all of his promises. And this is important because God has made many promises. And it's really important because some of those promises are still to be fulfilled. Some promises that God has made, we are still waiting for him to keep. And we need to know his character as we wait. We read it earlier in the service, but that phrase, they will look on the one they have pierced occurs not just in the book of Zechariah, not just here in the Gospel of John, it also occurs in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 1, which is also written by John. And the book of Revelation culminates not with the first coming of Jesus, but the second coming of Jesus. The promise that not only did he come, but he is coming. And this is so important, right? Because we said earlier that God has promised to protect his people. God has promised to defeat his and our enemies. But as Max prayed earlier, we live in a world where it does not always seem this way. We see and and hear the news from, from the Ukraine and so many other awful situations in the world, many of which we're not even aware of. We lament the persecution of the global church. We feel the pain in our own heart over, over hurt and, and, and suffering and loss. And we see again and again, as we confessed earlier, that we often fail to live up to what we believe. And yes, even as we begin to understand and grapple with the fact that we are forgiven, we also long for more than that. 
We long to be made new and not to struggle with the same things over and over again. All of these things are difficult. And that's when we remember that the fulfilled scripture of John 19 doesn't just apply to the specific facts of John 19. The fulfilled scripture of John 19 speaks to the character of our good and unchanging God. The one who is so loving that he sends the Son of God into the world. The one who is so powerful and so involved in his creation that he orchestrates events exactly so that the very bones of Jesus would not be broken even as he dies, reminding us that he is not only willing but able to keep all of his promises. And yes, some of what God will do is in the future. But because of his character, we can begin to live in the truth not just of what has happened, but what will surely happen someday. I love what church history tells us about John. We know he wrote the gospel, this gospel. We know he wrote a few letters to the church. We know he wrote the book of Revelation. But according to church history, the Apostle John continued to minister to the church to a very, very old age. And eventually he got really old, and he wasn't even able to walk anymore. And so every Sunday, church history tells us, he would be carried into the gathering of believers. And his disciples would carry him around, and John would repeat to those gathered, little children love one another. Little children love one another. And John would say this week after week, and eventually he was asked by his disciples, why do you keep repeating this simple message? And John replied to them, because it is the Lord's command, and if this only is done, it is enough. Now, we have no absolute way of knowing 100% for sure that this is what John said, but it sure does sound like John, especially if you read his letters to the church later in the New Testament. And it's such a beautiful and simple picture, especially compared to the frantic and misguided religion of the Jewish leaders throughout the Gospels, and even compared to our own frantic quest for goodness and enoughness that we still tend to embark on today. John was loved by Jesus. John loved others as he was loved. And John implored those coming after him to do the same because he knew that not only Jesus had come, but he would also come again someday. And you know, because we know that, that Jesus has come and because we know that God keeps his promises, we know that this Jesus who was pierced will one day come again. And as Max prayed earlier, that, that means we can rest even as our circumstances change and even as the world around us rages. We can see the cross. And instead of just continuing on without it affecting us, by God's grace, we see the cross and we are made new by God's mercy and God's grace. And we can desire, as John did for those who read this gospel account, that, that all those who, who come around us and all those who come around our church would begin to see Jesus for who he is. For us to have hearts that break and eyes that weep for those that don't know him, just as Jesus did when he saw the crowds of people who were harassed and helpless. We need to remember this. When Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, he meant it. His earthly mission was complete. And if we will see the cross as John did, so is our frantic quest for relevance, for goodness, for righteousness, and for enoughness. And when this quest ends, we are free. Free to live in the light of his great love for us. As the church has confessed for centuries, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Let's pray.
Father, we are so, so thankful for the great love that you have for your people. We thank you so much for not being a God who avoids his creation. We thank you for creating uh, this world so, with so much uh, care. We thank you for not leaving us to our own sin and our own rebellion and our own suffering, but for sending your Son into this world to experience all these things, to die on our behalf, to continue to intercede for us, to, to sympathize with us in our weakness. And Lord, we are so thankful that Jesus is coming again. Lord, uh, we pray that we would live in light of all that has happened in salvation history and that we would continue to live in light of your character, just knowing that you will care for us and knowing that you will make all things new and all things right. Lord, help us to trust and believe in your promises. We thank you so much for this time together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.